Who would have thought a praise song about Ziba, Zalmuna, Orev, and Zeb? Uh, but uh, there it is, and uh, we're going to be talking about some of those characters as we look to God's word. We've been working our way through the book of uh, Judges here and have been spending a lot of time in, on the story of Gideon as God has raised up Gideon from being a fearful man uh, to a leader of his people. And we've been talking about as we've come now to the battle uh, that Gideon has fought, how this is really a, a victory of faith as Gideon and his men have uh, uh, gone down to fight against the Midianites. So we'll be looking this morning at um, mostly at Judges chapter 8 verses 1 uh, to 22, but I'm going to back up and read some of what we read last week and I'll start in chapter 7 at verse 22 to remind us of how the battle, uh, the initial part of the battle happened and then what followed up. And I just want to make sure the children uh, are with me. So uh, the, the battle that was fought that we read about last week, uh, who won that battle? Anyone know who was it that won? Was it, here's the choices. It was it Gideon, uh, Gideon's 300 men, or God? Okay, excellent answer. Are you going to say the same thing? That's right, because we remember the soldiers didn't even have weapons in their hands. They had a trumpet and a torch, and they were praising God's name. And so we're going to pick up with that moment, and then we're going to find out what happens in the aftermath of that battle. So this is God's word. Let's give it our attention. When the 300 blew the trumpets... The Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And they killed Zeb by the by they killed by the winepress of Zeb. And they per- pursued Midian. And brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. And so he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezar? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Sukkot, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Sukkot said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? 
So Gideon said, for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel saying, when I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left, all the army of the people of the east for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbatha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle, from the ascent of Heres, and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkot and interrogated him and wrote down for him the leaders, he wrote down for them the, the leaders of Sukkot and its elders, uh, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Sukkot and he said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars with which he taught the men of Sukkot. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you would let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's neck. And there will end the reading of God's word. May he bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. There's a lot to process uh, in that passage And it's made more complicated by the fact that Gideon's response uh, to these two challenges he faces uh, are very different. He's very conciliatory to the men of Ephraim who challenge him, but he is seemingly very vindictive uh, to the men of Sukkot and Penuel. And about half the commentators who are writing about this as I studied them, seem to think that this is evidence that Gideon has just gone off the beam, that that Gideon is inspired by vengeance uh, because these men who killed his brothers and uh, he's pursuing his own agenda here. And sadly, I think that interpretation isn't drawn so much from the text, but from uh, our expectations about what we expect a godly leader to be like. And so uh, we, we, we want to see the grace side, the mercy side. We, we welcome that. That seems to be our society's desire, right, is that our leaders are leaders who just always say yes to us, always give us whatever it is we think we need. 
And I think that's being imported on the interpretation of this passage because we see uh, that Gideon shows not only this merciful side, but he also shows a side of justice and righteousness and that that's actually what's going on here. And we have to unwrap this a little bit to understand. And because that's the case, Gideon is showing us, as all the judges in this book are, something about uh, the ultimate king, the ultimate savior, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who perfectly unites mercy and justice in his ministry and in his service. And we see, we see that in the judges in this book, in their imperfections, by way of contrast, they point to Christ. And in whenever they do something right, they also are pointing us to Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this passage, I want you to see that Gideon shows you the mercy and justice of Jesus so that you will learn to love and appreciate your true king more. And so children, if you're going to draw a picture, you might draw a picture of Gideon and uh, what he says uh, to the men, maybe uh, two pictures, what he says to the men of Ephraim and then what he says to the men of Penuel, or what happens there. And uh, listen as we talk about why the two very different responses. Well, there's an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. And there's also a map again that's in there. And we'll refer to that map at the appropriate place as we follow this battle. The first thing I'd like us to see is that sometimes your greatest challenges come from within the church. So God has won this miraculous victory on behalf of the people. They've been enslaved as this massive horde of Midianites comes up year after year and eats all their food, and they've been impoverished by that, and there's been no relief. And relief. And now God has raised up Gideon, and they have won this great victory over the Midianites. And now we see that the problem he's dealing with in this passage isn't really the Midianites, it's the people of God. And so recognize the symmetry in the passage. In the first part, there's a conflict with uh, the men of Ephraim in the context of him capturing uh, those two commanders uh, of the army. That they're called princes in my translation. And then in the second part of what we read, there's the conflict with uh, the men of Sukkot and Penuel in the context of taking the two Midianite kings. So two princes, two kings, and then the conflict that arises there. And uh, recognize that Gideon with his 300 men has, has started this route as God has worked and the Midianites are, fly, are, are fleeing in terror and in fear and many of them have fallen. And so it's obvious to the people, anyone around, that God is in the middle of this. And uh, God is with Gideon, and so it's time to get on board and, uh, and help and follow up with Gideon. And, uh, and we, as we look at the passage just from, a, from a, a, a high distance, we see that, first of all, he's getting pushback and flack from the men of Ephraim. One of the other uh, Jewish tribes is giving him uh, a, a lot of criticism, and he's got to deal with that. And then later, as he seeks help from these other cities... They won't give it to him. In fact, they taunt him and they mock him and they act like he's not going to be successful. And so as we're, we're going to dig into this in just a minute. But at this point, 
I just want you to realize, right, his problem here is with the people of God. It's God's people who are giving him challenges. And uh, that should sadden us, but it also shouldn't surprise us. I put a quotation from commentator Ralph Davis in your outline there. And Ralph says, here is instructions for, for us. Sometimes the people of God are a great disappointment. If you don't know that, you may not survive in the church. Uh, so, uh, yes, it's a true, it's, it's a true statement. Um, the church is full of sinners, redeemed sinners, but still sinners. And because of that, uh, there, there are going to be challenges within the church. I think if you asked our elders what the most uh, agonizing and difficult things that we have dealt with over the last couple of years are matters within the church at the higher levels of the church and the presbytery and the synod level that's where the real anguish and heartburn has been uh, it's not been because the people of the world uh, outside the church are attacking us uh, and they, they sometimes contribute but that that's really not been where the the problems are it's been uh, conflict with within the church and uh, that sometimes that's so hard. We are incredibly grateful that God has blessed our congregation with a, a very healthy spirit of unity and grace. And uh, that is one of the greatest gifts that God uh, can give to his people. Now, I realize I said something last week in the sermon that um, maybe disoriented a few people and, and, and so I got some comments and questions later because I mentioned uh, that as we try to seek God's will in understanding the future for our facility uh, and we have a committee working with the architect about proposing an addition to our building but we also have been approached recently by another church in the community that's congregation is shrinking and is looking for someone to take their building. And if you're wondering what that is, it's Fairview United Methodist, just uh, north and west of downtown. And so uh, we're, we're, we're praying, we're thinking, we're just getting information at this point. No, nobody's made any decisions. We just want to know what God is leading us to do. But uh, as we've ch chatted about this in our, in our session and on our committee, uh, one of the things that we think is the absolute highest priority and what we're praying for is that whatever happens, and we will have to make some challenging decisions in the coming months, is that the unity of the congregation is preserved. That this does not become uh, an issue of division. Uh, that is the last thing that anyone wants or we need. So we need to be praying that God would lead us clearly and that he would also lead us together to see what his will is. Because uh, sadly, uh, it, it, it's not uncommon for conflict to come from within the church, and that's certainly what Gideon was dealing with here. Secondly, then, as we think about dealing with this conflict, we need a savior who graciously deals with his servants, even his self-justifying servants. So as we read last week, and I read again in verse 22, uh, as Gideon and his men profess their faith, they shout for, God, for Yahweh and for Gideon, and then they just stand there, they blow their trumpets and wait, 
And God moves the Midianites to start fighting against each other. And thousands are being killed. And then they begin to flee. Uh, And you can see in your map as they flee uh, down, those are the red arrows uh, fleeing away uh, from the battle in the middle. And they're trying to get back to the river and across. And uh, so Gideon then calls up uh, the men of, uh, of Ephraim. And so those are the blue lines down here. So Ephraim is to the south. And to this point, all the soldiers that are helping uh, came from the northern tribes that were most closely uh, being impacted by the Midianites. So Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali and Gideon himself is from Manasseh. And so Ephraim coming up from the south is going to cut them off. And it seems like they're very successful at cutting them off. And only about 15,000 of this force that's 135,000 is able to get across the river in red and to continue the retreat. Uh, But as Ephraim moves up, they're able to capture these two princes, uh, Oreb and Zeb or Zeb, um, and and bring them to Gideon. So they come uh, to Gideon and uh, and they've, and they've, they've got these two. And then we pick up in chapter eight, verse one. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply, or they accused him. And this seems crazy, right? We're winning this incredible victory, and they're complaining because they didn't get called into the action soon enough. And this might seem very puzzling to us, but uh, understand, right? In Eastern cultures, honor and shame are a very big deal. And uh, Ephraim uh, had been sort of the leading tribe. Uh, Joshua, uh, who led the conquest, was from Ephraim. And so Manasseh, I mean, again, who's ever heard of any, anything good coming from Manasseh, right? This is a smaller tribe, not well known. And so Manasseh has led this battle, and they get all the glory for this rout of the Midianites. And Ephraim is called in at the end to sort of uh, help us mop up at the end of it. And so they view this as a slight on their honor and something that's humiliating, I suppose, uh, you families. If that's like the, uh, the, the younger child, you know, comes to the rescue in a, in a challenging situation and, uh, and sort of the older siblings feel like they've been, um, they've been uh, shown up or something like that. Well, these, these Ephraimites are... Are, stood, are, are, are extremely upset about this. Now, we, we recognize this is not appropriate. Gideon is doing what God told him to do. And in fact, these Midianites have been coming into the land for seven years. And Ephraim could have at any point uh, participated in this, and they never did. Uh, Matthew Henry, uh, commenting on this, this is in your outline, said they, they knew the enemy was in their country and had heard of the forces that were <laughs> raising to oppose them, to which they ought to have joined themselves in zeal for the common cause, though they had not a formal invitation, those seek themselves more than God that stand upon a point of honor to excuse themselves from doing real service to God and their generation. So, so children, to help you understand what Matthew Henry's saying there, he's saying, um, you're sitting in your room, you're reading, you're playing a game, and you hear mom come home from the store, and you know she has a car full of groceries. And so you sit in your room, and your siblings go out and help mom bring the groceries in from the car, 
And then uh, mom, just because she's feeling good, gives each one of those children a candy bar. And you sat in your room and you didn't help carry in the groceries. But then you find out everybody else got a candy bar and what are you going to do? You're going to go down there and say, that's not fair. Nobody told me. Nobody asked me to come move the groceries when, of course, you knew as much as anyone else did that your mom needed help. And that's sort of what the Ephraimites are doing here, right? They're pretending this kind of faux outrage that, uh, well, nobody told us. Why are you just now calling us, uh, calling us out here at the end? But, but the point of this is, look at how Gideon responds to this. Uh, he says in verse 2, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezar? What, what is he saying there? He's saying, uh, yes, uh, he's the one from Abiezar. Uh, that's his family. So he's saying, yes, we were reaping. We were, we were in the battle and, and all these Midianites were dying. Uh, and you came along afterwards. You were a part of the cleanup operation, the gleaning. But look what you got in your gleaning. You caught these two princes. And that's, that's more than we accomplished in all that we did. Uh, as he says, what was I able to do in comparison with you? And as he explains it this way, uh, he, he, he pacifies them. They, they are placated. It says, uh, then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Uh, Gideon here embodies the principle of Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or what uh, Paul writes in Philippians 2 verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And of course, that's what we're very, we're really not very good at that, esteeming others better than ourselves. We we get good at instinctively justifying ourselves or making excuses for our failures, protesting whenever we don't get the proper credit. And sadly, all too often, we sometimes sit back and criticize other people for the way they're doing things. They're doing ministry, maybe, and they're not doing the way we would do it. And we criticize them when we may not be doing that much at all ourselves. And this is why we need a savior like the one who's being described here. This is, this is who we are, these Ephraimites, and this is who Jesus is. He comes as the one who won genuine glory for himself. He was the one who went to the cross, rose again, defeated the devil. And yet he comes to people like you and me who haven't won anything or done anything, relatively speaking, and he shares his glory with you. This is what Gideon is doing. He, he's sharing the, the glory. He was the one that went out there with the 300 men. He put himself in harm's way. And he's sharing that glory with these complaining, self-justifying Ephraimites. And so you see here how we're being shown through Gideon the type of savior, the type of leader that these people needed in every generation, the type that we need also. One who is gracious and forgiving and patient and gentle and humble. A savior who gets down on his hands and knees and washes the feet 
of his disciples. That's what we're being shown here, a savior who deals graciously with his self-justifying people. But thirdly, we also need a savior who relentlessly pursues and seeks to eradicate evil. So Gideon uh, hasn't lost sight of his mission. In verse 4, he continues to pursue with his 300 men. And uh, he's rightly thinking here that he's going to get these Midianite kings and make sure they do not come back again. And this seven-year nightmare that's been happening is going to be over. And so his soldiers clearly have dropped their torches and their horns and are carrying their swords and are pursuing uh, the victory that God has given them. Uh, Arthur Kundal, speaking about this, says, A great and decisive victory had been consolidated by the dogged and courageous persistence of Gideon and his men, always outnumbered by their enemies. Uh, Verse 4, I think, could be an apt description of the Christian life as it describes them crossing the Jordan in pursuit, exhausted but still in pursuit. Exhausted but still in pursuit. This is what they are doing. And Matthew Henry, speaking about this, says, Our spiritual warfare must thus be prosecuted with what strength we have, though we have but little. It is many a time the true Christian's case, fainting and yet pursuing. And this is what they were doing. And so uh, we're going to come back to this in more detail, but as they're pursuing, and you can see on your map here now following this red line, uh, you can see these cities of uh, Sukkot and Penuel right along the line, right across the Jordan River on this tributary that's falling in there. So as they're pursuing, they're seeking help uh, from their brethren as they go to follow um, the, uh, the fleeing Midianites and especially to try to get the kings. And they're turned down uh, from getting this help. Again, we'll come back to this later. But you see at the bottom of the map, it says to Karkor. So this is where they had fled. And Gideon takes his men around to the east by a secret trade route and so comes upon them, uh, surprising them when they thought uh, that they were at rest. And so... Uh, As it says, their armies uh, were fleeing. And uh, in verse 10, you get why we've been saying this total army is 135,000. 15,000 are left, 120,000 have fallen. And as they continue to flee, uh, Gideon comes with them. And it says uh, in verse 11, at the end of that, he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. And so Gideon comes upon them as they thought they'd finally gotten away and he disrupts them and he captures their two kings. And as we read at the end, he executes the two kings, completely removing the threat. And uh, this is his dogged pursuit, trying to eradicate the evil. I saw in the news last week that there was a Target store in San Francisco that has now put all of its toiletries under lock and key. Uh, So for example, whereas uh, we could understand coming to a store and saying, yeah, I'd like to look at that fancy watch and the clerk has to get out the key and open the glass case and show you the watch. Now, if you want uh, to see the toothpaste, uh, you have to ask the clerk to get out the key and unlock the glass case so you can see the toothpaste. And the reason that's happening is because uh, several years ago, uh, there was an ordinance passed uh, 
that made shoplifting less than $950 a misdemeanor and not a felony. And it turns out then that the the prosecutors rarely uh, follow up on anyone stealing at one time uh, less than $950. So uh, in in the guise of being compassionate, and letting people steal uh, just a little, uh, they've created a situation where uh, many uh, companies are bankrupted and stores have to leave. And you see this, an interesting philosophy, right, that we'll let them steal a little. As you just steal a little, that's okay. And uh, we're seeing something very, very different. We thank God that we have a Savior who doesn't want us just to be uh, stealing a little. Uh, he, he wants us to be fully and completely sanctified. And he's going to be uh, unwavering in his commitment to eradicate evil. Uh, That's a wonderful thing about our Savior because the Bible tells us he's going to eradicate all evil from the world and completely renew the world as well as all evil uh, from our own lives. He's going to make us perfect in his image. Uh, This is the conclusion of the entire Bible, really. I put in your outline some quotations from Revelation chapter 20. And it says there that the devil who deceived the people was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is a way to, to, to communicate the finality at the end of the world, when Christ comes and consummates his kingdom, all evil is going to be done away with completely and fully. And that is our only hope, that God is going to be renewing uh, the world. He's going to be taking away anything that is an enemy of goodness or truth or beauty. He's going to take away God's enemies, your enemies, your sin will be dealt with, and uh, you will be completely in the image of Christ. And Gideon's absolute relentless pursuit of evil, in this case, to eradicate it, is pointing us to that aspect of our Savior. Well, fourthly, we see here also that we need a Savior who faithfully purifies his church. So here we go back to these two towns, Jewish towns, and they have a a very long history Uh, Penuel was the place where uh, the angel wrestled with Jacob. Uh, This is a very uh, significant place. And when Gideon was pursuing these kings, he came to them and asked for uh, for bread. Uh, You you see that in in verse 5. He said, please give me loaves of bread uh, to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna. And what did they say? They say, uh, do you have these men in your hand? Are you actually going to succeed in in defeating these two kings and their 15,000 soldiers who are left? Uh, We have no interest in helping you. And uh, of course, Gideon should have expected hospitality simply because uh, they were Jewish brothers and sisters. They were people of God. Uh, But far uh, far above that, Gideon was leading, he was God's servant, leading this army against the enemies of God. They should have uh, opened, rolled out the red carpet, given him a key to the city, celebrated him for what he was doing. And instead, 
they taunt him. And this is what Penuel did as well. So Gideon uh, comes back in verses 13 and following then to deal with these uh, two uh, cities after he's captured the kings. And it says in uh, verse 14, he caught a young man of the men of Sukkot and interrogated him and he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkot and its elders, 77 men. And when he came to the men of Sukkot, he said, here they are, here is Zeban Zalmunna about whom you ridiculed me. Um, uh, and And then he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars with them and he taught them. Now we don't know exactly what he was doing, but it sounds like he gathered um, thorns and uh, from from uh, the plants, and either he whipped them with them or he dragged them through them. Uh, but he uh, taught them a lesson that they would remember physically and uh, emotionally, I suppose, in the humiliation of it. And then he goes in verse seventeen to Penuel, and it says that he tore down the tower of Penuel and he killed the men. Of the city, and so this this place was apparently a garrison of some sort, and this indicates the presence of this tower. That the whole purpose of this city was to provide protection for God's people, and it must have had some soldiers there, even. And uh, it appears that they didn't help, and Gideon has now uh, brought out justice against them as well. And this is where the, the the critics of Gideon just have an absolute field day because they cannot reckon how he could do this that this is all personal vengeance this is him acting out on his own this is him you know he's he's on his own program he's not following God's lead Uh, and several of the commentators say that but I think what they're missing is what the text is telling us the text is actually not afraid to, to tell us when Gideon's doing something wrong in fact the next next week or next time we look at this we're going to see that very fact Um, Here, the text is careful to tell us that Gideon came and identified who were the leaders of of Sukkot. uh, It wasn't just a blind rage where he was wiping out. He he found the leaders of this city. He went to Penuel where there was a garrison and he meted out vengeance on those in the city, the, the garrison that failed to help him. And I think the text is showing us that this is actually carefully administered justice that is going on here. And it's against those who have betrayed the church. And this helps us understand why he treats the men of Ephraim so graciously and here he seems so harsh. I put in a, a quote from Gordon Ketty in your outline. And Ketty says, although the Ephraimites were quite wrong in their criticism of Gideon, they were committed to the Lord's cause Whereas the people of Sukkot and Penuel refused to make any such commitment and therefore committed acts of treason against God and his people. And if you go back in chapter 7 to verse 24, what did it say? When he made the call to Ephraim, uh, it said that, um, he says, come and help us. It says, then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth brought. When they were called, they came and they showed themselves to be firmly on the side of God and God's anointed general Gideon. Whereas the other people, they stuck their finger in the wind and they thought, you know what? 
we're fine with these Midianites. They're really more over on the other side of the river than here. And if there's a chance that Gideon may lose at the end, and we've helped Gideon, then this all may come back on us. So we're just going uh, to watch out for ourselves, and we're not going to risk anything for the cause of God and God's deliverer. And it's because they, in essence, actively sided with the enemies of God that their punishment is so harsh. And so this isn't Gideon in a blind rage. This is Gideon acting as a a, a judge on behalf of God. And, And we see this in our Bibles, that this happens periodically. This is why we read from Acts chapter 5 earlier in the service. Uh, again, our modern sensibilities, they, it doesn't make sense. How can these two people be struck down? Uh, because they just gave part of the money instead of all of the money. But understand, Jesus takes threats to his church very, very seriously. And he's serious about removing evil from his church. And sometimes he does that by removing people. And sometimes he does that by chastising people. And, and we ought to understand that this is a gift and a blessing, that we have a Savior who loves the church uh, to the point that he's not going to let us just wander along or to, be, or, or, or to be harboring enemies in our midst, but he's going to intervene and he's going to chastise us when that's needed and he's going to work in our midst to root out evil among us. We, we regularly pray that God would bless the other congregations in our community. But there's a caveat that he would bless the other congregations in our community that preach the true gospel. Because we don't want the other churches to succeed in this community who are not teaching the word of God. We want them to fail. We want no one to be going through their doors. And that may sound harsh, but the idea is that we want our Lord to be honored and we want the truth to be taught. And that's where we want people to go. Wherever God's truth is being proclaimed. And we need to thank God that Jesus cares about the church. He cares about the purity of the church far more than we do. And he's absolutely committed to purifying it. And Gideon is just showing us again this aspect of our Savior who is, who is committed to the purity of his church. And fifthly then, we see in the passage that Jesus is your true king, showing mercy to his servants and justice to his enemies. So as we look at the very end of this passage we've read, verses 18 and following, we see that he uh, finally confronts the two kings and he asks them, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? Now, we don't know what, what happened here. There was, there, there was a battle uh, that, that's not uh, described at Mount Tabor, apparently, and, uh, and, and uh, Gideon's brothers have been killed. And so he confronts them about this and they say, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. And this is the first time in this book that the concept of kingship is applied to Israel and its people. And remember, that's the problem. 
in, in, this, in this whole book of Judges, I, I put a quotation here from the very end of the book, 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the problem. There was no centralized worship. There was no centralized leadership. And this is the first time kingship is mentioned in the book. And applied it. We've had kings of, of the enemies, but this is the first kingship applied to Israel and its people. And, uh, and this is fascinating because, of course, we know that Gideon started out as a terrified man and God has raised him up so that he looks the part. So that these kings, Ziba and Zalmunna, they look at Gideon and they say, you look like a king to us. Uh, and, and we would say, you know, it takes one to know one. They have a sense of what royalty looks like. And they acknowledge him as looking the part of the king. And then when uh, Gideon uh, uh, calls for his son to rise and kill them, this would have been a way to honor his son, but also to humiliate these two kings. And the son is not willing to do it, as it says he was afraid because he was still a youth in verse 20, very much reminding us of his father Gideon, who until very recently was also uh, very much afraid. And, uh, and so again, the, um, the king, Ziba and Zalmunna, say to him in verse 21, rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And what they're saying is, you're the one who looks like a king, you're the one who has the strength of a king, you kill us, because it's more honorable for them to die at the hands of a fellow king than some young, uh, young man, the king's son. Uh, and, so, and so here is what he does. He, he plays the part of a conquering king. And that's highlighted then in verse tw- at the end of verse 21. He killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. He takes uh, their, their symbols of royalty from them. And then again is acting the part of a king. So, so see that this is, it's fascinating what it's trying to show us here, that Gideon plays the part of a king. He, he acts like a king in showing mercy to the men of Ephraim who are self-justifying. He is committed uh, to chastising the traitorous uh, Israelites from Sukkot and Penuel, and he's a just judge judging these two enemy kings and and the, the idea is, is highlighted in verse 19 when he says they were my brothers that you killed as the Lord lives if you would let them live I would not kill you it's just the text is again emphasizing that these murderers deserve what they're getting here and that this is a judicial act and so Gideon is pointing us to the kind of savior that we need one who can be merciful uh, where that's needed and also just punishing evil where that is needed. Uh, Romans 11:22 tells us, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. And that's just foreign to our thinking, that there is a goodness to God, there's a mercy, and there is a severity. There is a justice. And where do these two things meet most perfectly? Those two things meet most perfectly in the cross 
where Jesus Christ, who is truly innocent, is punished so that God's righteousness can be fulfilled. The, the punishment that deserved to go on his people, on you and me, goes on Jesus. And in that great act of justice is also the greatest act of mercy because that's where we find forgiveness because God punishes Jesus in our place. And as we think about this passage, we must see that we are the unfaithful people. We are the ones who deserve to be scourged and to be uh, drawn through the thorns. We are the ones who deserve to have uh, our, our lives pulled down and to be punished and executed as the enemies of God. And yet, that's not what happened. Jesus was the one who was scourged. Jesus was the one who was, had a crown of thorns pressed into his head. Jesus was the one who had his life pulled down. Jesus was the one who was executed as a criminal and as an enemy of God. And, and think about the other side of it. Jesus is the one who rose victorious and who graciously extends that victory that he won to people like you and me. And he's absolutely committed then to cleansing us and to helping us to grow and to say no to our sin. He is exactly the savior that you and I need. So as we think about this passage, we are drawn to see the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfect in his mercy, who is perfect in his justice, and who is one we need to love and to praise and to serve as he enables us. Let's pray and give him thanks. Heavenly Father, we confess this is a difficult passage and um, there's a lot going on. We thank you that we see elements here that point to what godly leadership looks like and ultimately which points us to the perfections of our Savior, Jesus, who endured the chastising and the punishment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and that we could be recipients of your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that your justice and your mercy meet perfectly in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we pray, Lord, that in him we would find uh, forgiveness and strength and wisdom, uh, that we would be uh, men and women and children pursuing his righteousness, uh, seeking to live as he wants us to live so that he would be glorified and honored and that the victory would ultimately be his. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and we pray that you would continue to teach us and help us to grow in our love for Jesus. And if any here do not yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we pray that you would help us to put our faith in him. We pray this in his name, amen. And now let's respond back to God's word by singing. Uh, this time we'll sing from Psalm 85, Selection B. And uh, this is a psalm that speaks of God's forgiveness. Uh, his, his saving help is surely near, it says in stanza six. And then in stanza seven, together met our truth and grace, right? justice and mercy, uh, while righteousness and peace embrace. True faithfulness springs from the ground, from heaven 
righteousness looks down. In Jesus Christ, these two things meet perfectly. And through Jesus, we experience them and the benefits of them. So let's stand and sing about our Savior together.